Please do turn uh, to the passage, uh, Revelation chapter 3, page 992, on the blue uh, Bible, 1916 of the brown Bible. But before uh, Meredith begins to take us through uh, chapter 3, I thought it would be worthwhile to uh, just recall three simple things that we've looked at so far in this series uh, through the book of Revelation um, that hopefully set up what we're going to do today uh, pretty well. The first is that Revelation was written to a historical context like no other in the New Testament. Uh, Throughout the New Testament documents, there are hints of sporadic persecution of Christians in the first part of the first century, but only the book of Revelation indicates wholesale Roman repression of Christians throughout the entire region of what we call Turkey, what they called Asia. The evidence of the book of Revelation is clear that the Christians were under massive pressure, uh, some losing their lives already in this latter part of the first century. But we also have Roman evidence to remind you of a long letter we have from the Roman governor of Bithynia, just north of where the book of Revelation was written, just 10 or 15 years later, the Roman governor writes to Emperor Trajan about the problem of Christians. I dismissed any, he said, who denied that they were Christians when they had repeated after me a formula calling upon our gods and made offerings of wine and incense to your statue, O Trajan, a reference to the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor. And furthermore, had reviled the name of Christ, none of which things, I understand, any genuine Christian can be induced to do. But if they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. And this unique historical setting explains, in part, the unique literary style of the book of Revelation. The second thing, uh, by way of introduction... I've said many times that the book of Revelation is written in a style known as the apocalyptic genre, well known in antiquity amongst Jews and Christians. You could describe it as a Jewish literary style used in anxious times to unveil vital universal truths through coded imagery. It's that coded imagery that messes with the head of contemporary Christians because it's not a literary style that we're used to and all sorts of problems come about because Christians, unfortunately, have read it sort of semi concretely when ancient Christians wouldn't have. Now, the value of the apocalyptic genre is not just that Romans couldn't understand it, so you could say whatever you liked about the Romans and they wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. They just think you're crazy or high or something. Jews and Christians certainly understood the code. But the main uh, beauty of apocalyptic is that it excites the imagination. It takes normal theological ideas and amps them up in an imaginative way that excites the imagination. So that very simple themes like the word of Jesus, the gospel of his death and resurrection is portrayed throughout the book of Revelation as, do you remember? A sharp double-edged sword, the deadliest close combat weapon known in the Roman army. Now, this has nothing to do with violence. It's an apocalyptic image of the Word of God, and the point of it is saying, in this terrifying battle with Rome, all we need is to hold on to the gospel. It's the only weapon we need. Hang on. And this introduces the third thing I want to say, just by way of introduction, that actually, despite the complexity of the literary genre, the um, theme of the book of Revelation is straight down the line. It's very simple. The simple message of Revelation could be summarized as, if Jesus is the risen, eternal Lord, 
Only his kingdom will remain. So straying, staying true to his ways, even to the point of death, is true victory. The temptation in anxious times is to adjust what you believe. To reduce the dissonance we experience as Christians between what we believe and what the world wants us to believe by changing what we believe. We compromise, we adjust. But I think the book of Revelation makes clear why would any rational person adjust what they hold to be an eternal truth just to fit in with any particular blip of history? Why would you do it? If the gospel is an eternal truth, it makes no sense rationally to alter it at all just to fit in to this passing blip. Well, we've studied the first four of these mini-letters to the seven great churches of Western Turkey, and uh, today we're going to look at the three remaining, and all seven together set up beautifully uh, how we are to read the whole book of Revelation. And I think these three themes will come into sharp focus as we make our way through these mini-letters. We begin in Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Thanks, Meredith. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All the letters open with some aspect of Jesus' authority, and the letter to Sardis is no different. In verse 1, we're told that Jesus is the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. Well, if you were here on week one, we already know what this refers to. The seven spirits is just a poetic way of referring to the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars are, again, an apocalyptic way of referring to the seven angels of the churches or the seven messengers of the churches. So the picture is Jesus who actually holds the spirit and all messengers. In other words, what we're about to hear is divine communication, not human communication. This is the word of God. It's like what every letter says toward the close. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not human communication. And, you know, as much as we have to labor to understand this tricky literary genre, and we do all our historical work and our poetic work, we don't stand over this text as if we're the literary critic. I mean, I love plumbing the depths and intricacies of a text like anyone, but in the end, we sit underneath this text, 
For it comes from the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. It is massive authority. Then follows the dramatic I know statements that we get in all of the letters, and usually it's positive. I know how hard you have it, but not so much here, verse 1. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. We don't know the precise details about this church. But Jesus' judgment is that it's on the verge of death as a church. It has unfinished deeds, uh, verse 2. This doesn't mean you haven't done enough good deeds in order to get into heaven. Okay? One of the clearest themes of the book of Revelation is that we get into God's kingdom through the gift of salvation because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's not saying that. Unfinished deeds almost certainly refers to not staying true to the gospel to the end, not confessing Jesus as Lord in the context of the imperial cult, choosing to declare the emperor as the true Lord and reviling Jesus. We have really disturbing evidence about this, a passage I haven't read you from Pliny's letter to Emperor Trajan, uh, refers to Christians who actually denied Jesus He says you can't get a real Christian to do it, but look what he also says. Others of the accused declared at first that they were Christians, but then denied it. Presumably when Pliny said what was in store for them, asserting that they had been Christians, but had ceased to be. Some three years before, others many years. They all worshipped your image and the statues of the gods, And cursed Christ. Unfinished deeds. You know, uh, Jesus had said in his lifetime, in Matthew 10, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And the risen, glorified Jesus seems to refer to that very teaching in verse 5 of this letter to Sardis. He says, I will never blot out that name from the book of life. And then he goes, but I will acknowledge that name before my Father. Almost certainly a direct reference to this statement of the historical Jesus. Some are not acknowledging Jesus in public. Some are denying him. But sadly, it's the majority. Only a few don't. Isn't that extraordinary? Verse 4 says, Yet you have a few people inside us. Imagine this being said of St. Andrews. There are a few in St. Andrews who have not soiled their clothes in this way, participating in the emperor cult. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious, remember, this always means suffering for the gospel through to the end, 
the one who is victorious, will like them be dressed in white. Now, white has a double meaning in uh, the book of Revelation, and you can see the double meaning here. Yes, it means pure, okay? I mean, we still have that sense of, you know, pure uh, as the driven snow or whatever. You know, white symbolizes purity, but it also uh, symbolizes victory in the book of Revelation. Very often, white means victory. So just hold that in mind as you see all sorts of white things coming, including Jesus coming back on a white horse. It doesn't mean pure horse, it means the victory horse. But here it has that double meaning um, because it's the victorious who will be dressed in white. And this is probably a reference to the great triumphs of Rome, when army generals in Rome came back to Rome and marched and had an enormous ticker tape parade called the Triumph, uh, they didn't dress in military gear. They dressed in a pure white toga. White, the symbol of victory. But here, that imperial image is turned on its head. The truly pure, white, victorious people are those who suffer through to the end. And these faithful few get their names in the ultimate city role. Verse 5 says, I will never blot out that name from the book of life. Uh, These few have almost certainly been blotted out of the city role in Sardis. But Jesus is saying, "I, I will never blot out your name from the city role in heaven. You are citizens forever. Well, let's travel 45 kilometers to the southeast, now to Philadelphia, where it seems the entire congregation, not just a few, the entire congregation is faithful. Thanks. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter opens with a reference to Jesus holding the key of David and closes with a reference to the new Jerusalem. A bit of Old Testament background makes this perfectly clear because who was it that first conquered Jerusalem 1000 BC? We're in Sunday school now, right? Jesus, uh, not Jesus, that's the Sunday school answer. <laughs> David, 1000 BC, according to 2 Samuel 5, conquered 
Jerusalem, a whole chapter, 2 Samuel 5, it describes him and he, he's the one who, as it were, unlocks Jerusalem for the Israelites. And then just two chapters later, 2 Samuel 7, David is promised an eternal dynasty, an extraordinary thing in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. My love will never be taken away from him, that is, some successor of David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, your throne will be established forever. And this letter opens with Jesus holding the key of David and the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And, 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 and what it's saying is that Jesus is the one who opens up the new Jerusalem just as David did. He opens a door that no one can shut. As the Savior who died for us and rose again, he's flung open the doors to the new Jerusalem. He is the eternal Son of David, the one who is king forever. But as judge, he can also close the door to the new Jerusalem, and it can never be opened. That's what that that language makes clear. It's so striking, isn't it, in verse 8? I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Oh, in the previous verse, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. But for this church, it's all open door. There's no, there's no hint of judgment here. Jesus is promising to keep that door open. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Almost certainly a reference to the imperial cult and the problem of having to revile Christ. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet. Jesus knows this little congregation in Philadelphia is going through hell, is faithful. And the reference to the synagogue of Satan, we should already know about that because two weeks ago we referred to it uh, in Smyrna, Uh, there's a synagogue of Satan. Remember, Satan throughout the book of Revelation refers to Rome. This is a synagogue in Philadelphia that is collaborating with Rome against the Christians. Almost certainly this means that many of the Christians in Philadelphia were Jews or hangers-on to the synagogue, and now the synagogue, once they've become Christians, is turning on the Christians and dobbing them in to the Romans. Maybe issuing anonymous pamphlets telling the local officials who the Christians are, and so on. They are liars, Jesus says. Probably a reference to legal proceedings against the Christians. But the result is a massive reversal. Uh, Verse 9 looks really weird, but it's perfectly explicable with the Old Testament uh, background. Um, It says that these Jews, this synagogue in Philadelphia, I will make them come down and fall at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Well, there's a classic Old Testament promise about Gentiles falling down at the feet of Jews. I mean, here's one text, Zechariah 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says, in those days... Ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe. In other words, on their knees before the Jew. 
and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. And now Jesus flips this promise on its head and says, actually, it's this Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia that will bow down at your knees and say, God is really with you. Extraordinary stuff, a great reversal. Now, it's important to realize this is not a universal promise of all Jews bowing before all Christians. You got that? Did you hear that? No one fell asleep during that moment. It's a really important moment. I said, this is not saying all Jews will bow before all Christians. An anti-Semitic reading like that is just defies the word of Jesus. It's just saying that this Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia in the first century will come to acknowledge that this puny little church in Philadelphia are the true people of God. Maybe it's referring to a lost history, a history that we don't know of, where this synagogue in Philadelphia turned to Jesus Christ, as we know happened uh, throughout this region, throughout this uh, period. Maybe that's what it's referring to. The theme of reversal continues into the next verse, verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. We don't know if this refers to the final judgment, if that's the great trial, or if it's just some local disaster in the region, like an an earthquake or something, because this area was really prone uh, to earthquakes. Either way, the point is, this puny little church that has suffered so much from the residents of Philadelphia will be the only safe haven from some great catastrophe soon to come. The final promise in verse 11 and 12 is also a reversal. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Think about this. You're a puny little church in Philadelphia. You are being bullied by the residents, particularly by the Jewish synagogue that's ganging up on you against Rome. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to make you a pillar in the new temple, in the new Jerusalem. A pillar. It was a great privilege in the ancient world to have your name written on a pillar, right? And so there are examples uh, all around uh, Israel of names written on pillars, you know, great benefactors, honored people. But these people actually will be the pillar. A beautiful image of incorporation into God's family. And the point is, hang in there. You're doing so well, Philadelphia. I know you've got nothing but actually cling to the gospel and you have everything. Sadly, we hear a very different set of promises to the church down the road, the church in the luscious Lycus River Valley, the church of Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. 
So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea is one of the great inland cities of Asia, or what we call Turkey. The soil was super fertile. There were warm springs all around Laodicea, and holidaymakers would go there just to sit in the warm springs. There was a beautiful trade route uh, east and west from Laodicea, and they had their own river, the Lycus. They were doing pretty well. And maybe this is why Jesus reminds them in the opening of the letter that he's the ruler of creation, not them. Because they certainly lived in one gorgeous part of God's creation. Laodicea was so wealthy, so wealthy, that in the year 60, when there was a great earthquake throughout the region, just 35 years before Revelation was written, um, Emperor Nero offered to pay for the rebuilding of Laodicea, and the city officials turned him down and said, no, 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 we can, we can do it ourselves. Because they could. With great pride, they had enough to look after themselves and rebuild this city. And the thing is, it seems like the Laodicean mindset had seeped into the church of Laodicea. Verse 15 to 17 is pretty striking language. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. They are lukewarm. Uh, probably a little pun to the warm springs all around Laodicea. Everyone likes a cold drink, nice and refreshing. Well, nearly everyone likes a hot drink too. But who likes a lukewarm drink? I mean, I have met some weird people who like tepid water. But certainly not the ruler of creation. He doesn't like a lukewarm drink at all. He finds it nauseating. And the word spit there in verse 16 is actually the word emeo, which is the word for vomit. It isn't the word for spit. And the NIV translators obviously went, ooh, we mustn't have that read out in church. So they whipped it. But we, we get the word emetic from it. You medicos will know about thing, emetic things that make you feel sick. Or the wonderful emetrol to control feeling sick. Does anyone else have emetrol? I'm the only one all day who has ever used emetrol, it seems. Anyway. But it's, the point is, 
Jesus is sick. Complacency, born of wealth, is sickening to Jesus. That's what it's saying. And you know, it's really striking that there's no hint in this letter to Laodicea of the persecution that is prevalent in all the other letters. Huh. Is this just a historical quirk that Roman officials in Laodicea left the Christians alone for some unknown reason? Or is it that this church was so wealthy, so much a part of the establishment, so much compromising, that actually they blended in and avoided all persecution? We don't know. We don't know. What we do know is this. Wealthy complacency can undo a church just as easily as anxious compromise can. The other churches in Asia were compromising for fear of the pressure of Rome on them. Not this church. This church is complacent because, after all, they have acquired great wealth, verse 17. I do not need a thing. But compromise and complacency can both ruin a church. Hence Jesus' plea in verse 18. I counsel you, beg, plead, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, truly rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. The thing is, Laodicea in the first century was famous, I kid you not, for eye medicine. And there was a famous um, ophthalmologist, Tim, uh, called uh, Demosthenes Philolethes, who was from Laodicea. And so there's just a little kind of, I don't, I don't want to call it a joke, a little jab at them. All the things they're proud of, all the things they trust. Jesus is saying, none of them is trustworthy. Buy the true salve so you can see. Exchange your money. For the things of Jesus. Now, of course, this doesn't mean you can buy salvation. Of course. It means if you belong to Jesus, you will use your money for the things Jesus loves. It's not rocket science. What does Jesus love? He loves meeting the needs of the poor and seeing the gospel advance in the world. You look through the scriptures, especially the New Testament, and how Jesus likes money to be used by his followers. It's care for the poor and advancing the gospel. Exchange your money for the things of Jesus. I've said before that we are the 21st wealthiest suburb in Australia according to the NAB Charitable Giving Index. Though we are the 299th most charitable. Like, you just got to absorb that for a second. 21st wealthiest suburb in Australia, but the 299th most generous. We spend 18 cents 
in every $100 or 0.18% of income on charitable giving. Compare that to Castlemaine in Victoria, which is in the second lowest quintile in terms of income, where the median household income is $902 compared to our median household income per week of 2563. They are the most charitable suburb in Australia, the second lowest quintile. They give 36 cents in every $100 or 0.36%, which I'm pretty sure is double as a percentage of income. Am I right, Santino? Okay, let's not compare ourselves with Castlemaine. Let's compare our charitable giving with our spending on our luxuries, which I know you've heard from me before, but let's think of it this way. The median household income in this suburb I'm speaking about is 2563 per week. Now, of course, some of you are going, oh, wow, if we don't earn that much, wow, some people must be on a lot. And others, I'm pretty sure, are going, people can survive on 2563 per week. So we spend 0.18% of income on charitable giving, but compare it to alcohol. In this demographic, 2.4% of income, or $2.40 per $100, 13 times more than we spend on charity. Okay, what about holidays? Holidays in this demographic, we spend 4.1% of income, or $4.10 per $100, on holidays. We spend on holidays 23 times what we spend on charity. If we're a normal household. Please don't be outraged, you know, because you're super generous or whatever. These are just the averages from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. What about um, meals out? This just includes um, takeaway and restaurant. 4.8% of income, or $4.80 per $100. 27 times what we spend on charity. And here's a scary thought. We are in this church 360 households. 360 households. Okay, we're something 600 individuals, sure, um, but 360 households is probably the best way to think of um, the income of this church. And our budget annually is 1043000 We could bankroll the entire church, including what we give away to mission and aid, on what 360 households in this demographic spend on alcohol. We could almost double our budget on what 360 adults spend on holidays each year, and we could well and truly double our budget with what people in this demographic spend on restaurants and takeaway meals. Now, don't get me wrong. Holidays are great. Meals out, lovely. Alcohol, a gift of God. We're not to be ascetics. But if we can spend that sort of money on holidays and alcohol and takeaway, what does it say about what we can do for the poor and for the work of the gospel? The question, of course, is, has the North Shore mindset seeped into St. Andrew's Roseville? 
just as the Laodicean mindset had seeped into the church of Laodicea. And if so, Jesus urges us to exchange our money for the things he loves. And the plea comes out of love, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. I mean, how true is that? A parent who doesn't love and discipline their child is a parent who doesn't love their child. It's precisely that Jesus loves the Laodiceans and the Sanandrians that he rebukes us and calls us to a better way. The tone is more pleading than condemning. Verse 20 is remarkable. It's, it's been so used throughout the years as an evangelistic statement, but actually its proper context is here of Jesus talking to the church. Look at verse 20 and listen to the pleading tone. Here I am. I stand at the door, as in outside your door, and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. There's a contrasting pun here about doors, uh, contrasted with the Philadelphians. Because remember what was said about the Philadelphians? Jesus had opened a door no one can shut, and now he says, I can't even get in the door in the church of Laodicea. But I'm knocking. I want to come in and eat with you. We know that the historical Jesus in the Gospels wined and dined, right, with the sinners. And now here is Jesus begging to be let in to a door that he could kick in if he wanted to eat a meal with his beloved. Whether our issue is wealthy complacency or anxious compromise, Jesus invites us to his table to fellowship, to forgiveness and restoration. Let him in. Earlier in the service, we sang the Robert Robinson hymn, Come Thou Fount. Beautiful hymn. The words are just gorgeous. Robinson, 18th century um, poet and hymn writer, uh, very famous in the UK, And according to this book, 101 Hymn Stories, uh, a true story is told of how when he was young, he was fervent. When he wrote the hymn, he was fervent. But as he became more famous and the years rolled on, this hymn writer all but lost his faith. Not through some great tragedy or anything, just through laziness, complacency. And apparently, he's in a public carriage one day, and the woman opposite him in the carriage is humming his hymn. And he's looking weirdly at her. She notices she's, uh, he's looking weirdly at her, and she says, oh, do you know this hymn, do you? Isn't it lovely? And started to cite the words to him. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. He stopped her and explained that he was the author. 
and that he would give everything he had to feel what he felt when he wrote that hymn. But there was no way back for him. And this woman apparently said, yes, there is. It's in your hymn. Your hymn says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. I don't know the details, but he apparently found his way back to a robust But the only way back is via the blood of Jesus shed for us. You know, just about the first thing we hear in the book of Revelation about Jesus, chapter 1, verse 5, was to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. But here's the beautiful thing. At the end of the seventh letter, to this sickening Laodicean church. Jesus says the same love, the same freedom, because of the same blood, is available even to the Laodiceans in their horrible complacency. There is a way back. Whether our issue is complacency or compromise. Please hear the words of Jesus tonight. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and invites me in, I will eat with that person and they with me. Whoever has ears, hear what the Spirit says to St. Andrews. I think the only way to end is to give you 60 seconds or so to ponder what the Word of God in the power of the Spirit is saying to you tonight.